1918, as the terrible flu epidemic was waning, the people of the city of Philadelphia gathered for a victory parade marking the end of the Great War. Public health officials warned that crowds were a dangerous place to be and that the city would be wiser to call off the parade. But a desire to sell liberty bonds, the spirit of celebration, and a lot of wishful thinking won out. Flu cases spiked after the huge parade. Every hospital bed in the city was filled and the influenza killed almost as many Philadelphians in the subsequent week as it had in the previous several months. In 2020, as the numbers of cases and deaths from the novel coronavirus were still rising across the country, almost every single place except New York City, the people of scores of our cities poured into parks and beaches, into each other's homes and each other's yards for a Memorial Day celebration. Seeing this, it's tempting to conclude that the answer to what have we learned from past pandemics is not much. But to paraphrase Albert Camus, both decency and a desire to comprehend, compel us to see what pandemics have taught us and still have to teach us. There is great wisdom there and about more than responding to this and future pandemics. There's wisdom for everything that we do as human beings in a society together. The Black Death, or as it was known at the time, the Great Mortality of the 1340s and 50s in Europe, presented many of the same challenges we have today with greater intensity. Civic spending needed to rise to protect the people and enforce the laws meant to keep them safe. At the same time, the tax base was falling because people were dying. Just as now, it is falling because tens of millions have lost their jobs. The disease arrived in the 14th century as now with stunning rapidity. One day there were vague warnings about a disease afflicting people far away and the next people were dying right at home. Plague is far more fatal than COVID-19, but our means of spreading contagion are far faster than now than it was by boat, which took a few days to travel from port to port. Now it is by plane, which takes a few hours to travel halfway across the world. Then as now, the sufferers were isolated just when they needed help and companionship. People stayed away from one another, not knowing what caused the disease, but knowing well enough that one didn't want to be near somebody who was vomiting blood or showing other dramatic signs of deadly illness. It took tremendous courage to tend the bodies, and for that matter, the spirits of the sick. Doctors and priests fell prey to the disease. Family members died or fled. Today, family who might want to risk a visit to a loved one in the hospital are kept away for the sake of the community at large. Then, as now, the usual problems of society continued, even as the new one overwhelmed us. Things didn't stop while everybody dealt with plague. 
In medieval Europe, the crops still needed tending and suffered non-plague-related problems. The weather still threw challenges their way. Some wry remarks early in our pandemic noted that at least mass shootings would decline now that we were all in our houses. But tragically, that has not proven to be the case. There were almost as many mass shootings in March and April of this year as in January and February. Police brutality, as we have seen, continues. And all the other problems of life don't get put on hold just because we have one great big huge problem that we didn't even see coming until the beginning of this year. And then as now, a pandemic offers opportunities for looting. I don't mean broken windows and stolen goods at Target. I mean the flood of wealth from the poorest to the richest. In the Middle Ages, about 90% of the population were illiterate agrarian peasants, and the death of a head of household in a peasant family was regarded as an economic blow to the lord of the manor, who had lost a valuable worker of his land. The grieving family who had lost their husband, brother, father, uncle, and also their primary or only earner therefore had to pay hefty uh, compensation to the Lord, usually their best animal, their best cow or sheep or pig. Today, in the first uh, nine weeks of the pandemic, billionaires in the United States saw their fortunes rise by a collective $434 billion, a boost of 15% over the course of a little over two months. At the same time, millions of our fellow citizens, many right here in this gathering, tumbled into poverty or deep worry as unemployment rose by almost 40 million people. I realize that so far I'm not making much of a case for our having learned anything, but sometimes even the mistakes that we have made and repeated tell us what we can do differently if we just pay attention. So let's look at some things that we have learned and then some lessons that the pandemics of the past still have for us if we will heed them. We've probably all had or overheard conversations about what we would like to change after lockdown has lifted and the pandemic recedes into the past. And the great mortality and its results for the society of Europe and the modern world that the plague helped create has a lot to tell us about how those changes do and don't actually come about. We may say, for example, I've been taking more walks. I want to keep doing that when I go back to my regular schedule and my freedom of movement. Our employers may discover that many of us could keep working from home at least one or two days a week, if not all the time, and we've all observed that it's a lot better for the climate if more of us do. Many parents who have suddenly become homeschoolers have said, jokingly or not, we don't pay teachers enough. Maybe we should change that when we're all back in our classrooms. Some kids have learned that a different way of learning works better for them, and some have learned that it doesn't work for them at all. Millions of families who relied on daycare or family care in order for the adults to work have learned 
that these options aren't enough because when they disappear, when you can't send your kids to the daycare center or to grandma and grandpa, parents must both care for young children and work full time, an impossible task for many of us. And so many are saying, we need to do something different when we're back to quote unquote normal. The essential nature of millions of jobs has become clear. Not only nurses and doctors and emergency medical technicians are essential to keep us going in such a time, but also the hospital employees who do the laundry, clean the toilets, mop the floors, and empty the trash. The manufacturers of masks and other personal protective equipment, and everyone who works in those factories, from the file clerk to the foreman, they are essential to the safe continuation of our society. Clergy and other church staff have been deemed essential workers, as our governments wisely realize that social connection and spiritual sustenance are literally the difference between dying and living in a crisis such as this. Truck drivers are essential. So are grocery clerks, and the list goes on. Professor Dorsey Armstrong, in her teaching company course, The Black Death, for which I'm very grateful to uh, UUCPA member Anne Zeiss for calling my attention to her, she speaks about what changed economically and politically after this most famous and devastating of human pandemics. She says in the short term, often, there was dramatic change. Things, things were turned upside down socially. Um, socially, politically, economically, of course. Entire cities disappeared. People were on the move um, from one community to another. People who had had very little compensation for their work, such as most peasants, most serfs, suddenly found that their work was in demand as the labor pool shrank dramatically. And both unskilled and uh, so-called unskilled and so-called skilled workers found that they could command a better price for their work. All of these made dramatic short-term changes. Longer term, she says, not so much. There was a lot of pushback. And things tended to settle back in to the way they had been before. In some ways, that's a testament to the resilience of human beings, the elasticity of our institutions, that even a city council that lost two-thirds of its members to the plague would, and, and shut down completely during the, uh, the couple of years of the plague, it was back to work and pretty much as normal pre-plague days once the disease had moved on. But, that's the short term that she speaks about. And then the long term. But Professor Armstrong says we need to look at another term, what she calls extended term. And there, sometimes, there was real change. In general, it's seen that it's, it's considered by historians that the plague was responsible for many enormous changes in our society from the creation of a vibrant merchant class also the middle class, to the um, lo great loss of status of the church and its leaders, maybe even the death of the aristocracy, the rise of the Renaissance, into the creation of the modern world. I won't go into a lot of details, but I strongly recommend this, um, this course, which is not so depressing as inspiring in my experience, The Black Death from the Teaching Company. 
So without going into a lot of details from the Middle Ages, I'd like to just look at what makes the changes stick in the extended term. I think Camus' two characters really sum it up. It's a combination of comprehension and human decency, applying what we have learned in order to embody our values. For example, whatever our reservations about government's role in the economy in normal times, in a humanitarian crisis on this scale, it has to play a part or we will not recover. And this isn't even remotely like the great mortality, which killed fully half the people in Europe in a few years. So for example, something that we're learning for a temporary change, but also to put in the infrastructure to make this possible in the long term, is that we need loans and grants to those out of work. Some countries are doing this. We will see, my money is on, they're having a faster economic recovery than we do. Then of course there's the issue of health care. We're seeing that a, that a wider range of workers, maybe all of us are essential, therefore valuable, and therefore worth paying a living wage and giving health care regardless of their employment situation. We're recognizing that there are crises that none of us can weather alone. So states have to help each other via the federal government instead of competing for resources and driving up prices. Individuals have to have insurance to carry us through expenses that none of us could pay for ourselves. Now we talk about this now, but if Dorsey Armstrong's observations of the Middle Ages hold for, for uh, our time, what we are likely to see is that this fervor of, we're going to make things different after the pandemic, will suffer a long-term setback. People will say, yeah, well, you know, there's reasons that we only had health care for a minority of the people. There's a reason that people are kind of left on their own, that our tax system funnels so much money to the wealthiest, that states are left largely on their own. We're going to go back to that. That's what our structures are set up to do. But if we understand what led to this crisis, not the disease itself, they just keep coming along, but the intensity of our problems of dealing with them because of our lack of uh, uh, a social safety net, then we can keep that comprehension alive in the light of decency to say, we see a world that we'd rather live in. So before the next pandemic, we are going to make sure to set those things in place. This is one of the things that happened after the plague, the Black Death, the Great Mortality, was that peasants had uprisings. The uprisings were put down. But eventually, many of the reforms that they asked for were instituted because people saw that it was not sustainable or in keeping with their values to exploit people the way they had been exploited. Something we have yet to learn, and that past pandemics can teach us, is our tendency towards scapegoating. Whenever there is a tremendous uh, challenge facing the 
the human, uh, the human race, we tend to look for someone to blame without a lot of reason. Now, in the time of the plague, um, it was vicious and horrific how Jews, for example, were scapegoated. But at least we can understand, not the scapegoating, not the bigotry, but that people really did not know where the disease was coming from. Later, when plague struck India and Muslims were scapegoated in very similar ways the way, to the ways Jews had been in Europe, again, the bigotry is absolutely inexcusable. But the sense of confusion, why is this happening to us? Who could possibly be causing us? That's understandable. We have no such excuse when we repeated the pattern when AIDS uh, first came on the scene in 1980. Then gays were the scapegoat. Again, with a sort of um, pseudoscientific reasoning. Well, it mostly seems to be gay people who have it. But it was obvious to the scientific mind from the beginning that that was just the population that first got the disease. And so it tended to spread among the gay male population. Bigotry insisted on seeing it as a gay disease, whereas a clearer view, both comprehension and decency, saw that everybody was vulnerable. Just recognizing scapegoating as a pattern is a great learning that we could apply to many, many problems. Just recognizing that it is a pattern, that it's something we do over and over when faced by something that is frightening and hard to understand, hard to explain, that recognition takes the toxic wind out of those sails. Because the great lie that powers scapegoating is that these people are to blame. When we look at history and realize that in every pandemic somebody looks for scapegoats, the arguments that we hear today start to sound familiar and be shown to be nothing more than empty wind themselves. Something we've learned from other pandemics, the pandemic of smallpox, the epidemic of polio, is that vaccines are valuable, important, effective, and life-saving. We forget sometimes, and we are at the, moment in the, at the moment in a trend of doubting this. And yet, the fact that we are learning from these pandemics shows in the fact that they're the examples people bring up again and again. If somebody is against vaccinations, we can say, you know, smallpox, we don't see that anymore. Polio used to cripple people by the thousands. It doesn't happen anymore. Something else we can learn from past pandemics and our response to them, and that is applicable far beyond the realm of disease, is that magical thinking, like scapegoating, is something to which human beings are prone. Again, in earlier times when people simply didn't know what caused disease, it was understandable that they would think they were being punished by God or that a minority among them had been poisoning the wells. But What's our excuse now when so many, including our leaders, think that ignoring the advent of an illness or giving assurance that it will all go away will fix it? It's easy to point and laugh at magical thinking or shake our heads, but I realized how prone I was to it when I got to the end of Dorsey Armstrong's lectures. 
She speaks at the end of how plague exists in the world today. Usually it's not a problem. The main problem is recognizing it when we see it because it's so rare. But the antibiotics that we have since developed cure it quite easily. So as deadly as it is, it's not, doesn't have to be a problem. But then she shared that there is a strain of the plague in the world today that is resistant to every antibiotic and treatment that we have developed. My response to this, I have to say, was denial. Oh, I just, that, I just can't believe that. It's gonna stay, it's going to stay isolated. Then I thought, somebody else will handle that. I can't possibly do anything that we need to do in order to deal with that before it comes along. And then I thought, I'm just going to hope that it goes away. All magical thinking at work, when really what we need to do is develop other antibiotics, stop abusing them so that the ones we have stay effective as long as possible, put all possible research into this strain of plague, Something we may have learned is that pandemics are common. I didn't really learn it until I listened to Dr. Alexander's lectures, but maybe you knew already. Pandemics are common. The evolution of a new disease from time to time is not unusual. Far from it, it's practically inevitable. So the great big hoopla that comes along with AIDS or Ebola or a new form of flu or coronavirus we should pay close attention to them, of course, but we shouldn't be surprised. They're going to keep coming along. That's the way evolution on a changing planet works. But what we most need to learn is that the great hopes that come to us here in moments of quarantine, in moments when we are forced to change the way we live, those are realizable if we are determined, if we use our wisdom and our decency and say, I want it to continue to be like this. I want to have more options for daycare. I want everybody to have health care. I want to pay teachers and truck drivers and janitors what they're worth, which appears to be everything. It is a matter of will. Where we've applied it before, we have changed the world. Medieval people became the people we are today a very different world, and we too could bring about yet another civilization that is kinder, more compassionate, more ready to help the vulnerable. Here's what we've learned these past couple months. We are all vulnerable. The already vulnerable become even more so at crises like these. We can all be brave and help one another, not necessarily through heroic action, but just by staying home, wearing a mask, helping those who need help. And even though pandemics will arise again, regardless of what we do, we've learned that we can change in response to them. We can learn and grow in human care. These same guidelines apply to the disease of racism that has been endemic to the United States since before its founding. As we are called upon by a new crisis, coming to a head although having boiled along for a very long time. 
we are called to respond with decency and comprehension, with courage in the fact of our own vulnerability and particular attention to those who are at the greatest risk. Let us think, not short term, not long term, but what do we want in the extended term? What is the country, what is the world we want to see? Because we do have the power to bring it about. So may we do.